Welcome to Season 7 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. It's wonderful to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding our episodes useful, so please take the time to subscribe, share the episodes and leave some feedback. Before we get started, I would like to acknowledge the Darawal speaking people who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording. I pay respects to the elders past and present of the Darawal nation and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people that are listening to this. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Bill Conway. He is an educator and passionate innovator who's determined to reform schools and the way that we teach our students. He has worked across a number of education sectors, including in public, private, and non-denominational schools. But it wasn't until later on in his career that he found a way of teaching that fitted better with his philosophy. That's Montessori education. We had a wonderful, wide-ranging discussion about educational practice, assessment, and the importance of empowering and trusting our children and staff. I hope that you get as much out of this interview as I did. Please enjoy. Bill Conway, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. It's a real pleasure, Matthew. Thank you. Um, probably the most important question of our discussion, what's your coffee order? Uh, my coffee order? Um, I, it's a flat white, which I usually get from um, the source, which is a place uh, nearby that uh, has uh, fantastic coffee. So I, I'm pretty boring when it comes to coffee orders, actually. So yeah. I, I'm also a flat white kind of guy. So I don't think it's boring. I think it's. Um, I think once you've discovered something that works, I mean, why? Yeah. Why change it? And it depends uh, on what part of the world you're in, too. Because exactly. when you say flat white somewhere else, they don't know what that is. So it exactly. seems exotic. <laughs> and I, I, I can um, I hear a hint of an accent. So uh, if you ordered a flat white from, I know you're from originally from the United States, what, what would you get for coffee if you said that? Well, sometimes I have to ask for a latte, you know, which is the closest right. thing they can come up with. And, and, I, and um, I often have to tell them, please, no foam or bring, take the foam down. Or, you know, they, it's actually they're just not uh, that into uh, coffee like we are here. So, yeah, um, yeah, I do struggle sometimes with getting a good cup of coffee wherever I go. But uh, yeah, you're very fortunate because Sydney has an amazing uh, coffee culture, obviously Melbourne as well. And so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, is there an item bill that is uh, still on your uh, still on your bucket list? Uh, there are so many things that um, I've already ticked off on my bucket list. I mean, I just I feel so fortunate to have done a lot of travel and have um, done so many things that um, I look back on and I'm just so grateful. There's one place though that still uh, lingers there I haven't visited yet and that is uh, Patagonia. Um, I, of course I'd like to venture south of Patagonia into Antarctica sometime. I'm just quite fascinated with that, that uh, part of the world, that, uh, that environment which is just so uh, pristine still um, not that 
discovered yet. Um, and so I'd really love to go there if I could. But again, I'm just so grateful for my life and all the places I've been. Fantastic. And is there a book that you have recently read uh, that has uh, caused you to stop and reconsider things in your life? Oh, gosh. There, there's so many books. So many. <laughs> yeah. And one thing, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading and I guess um, there's been more of a, a series of books that have, I think, really impacted me in the way that uh, I've looked at life. And it, it started with um, with reading Sapiens um, by um, by um, Yuval yeah. Harry. Yeah, yeah. And um, that that kind of just, you know, kind of brings that whole perspective of, you know, who we are from, from the mm. very origins of who we are. And then I read Humankind by... Um, uh, by um, Rutger Bregman, and yeah. then, um, and I'm reading now The Dawn of Everything, which just kind of is this really heavy, very heavy book, you know, quite a long book. But uh, all of those gives me this perspective that, you know, we as human beings and where we are right now and what we look at when we see ourselves is something quite, um, quite new, quite. Mm. different from the our origins you know where we we had so many thousands and thousands of years of of um creating individuals and humans that lived in a much more egalitarian society much more yes. um you know of course focused on survival but you know now that we live in this modern world um what have we become you know we in some ways we you know we're not we can't be as proud of you know who we are when we are going around, you know, hurting others and being so yeah. competitive. So, so that has helped me to, to really understand life a lot. I think there's something really significant about uh, realising our insignificance in the universe. And I think it puts so many things in perspective. And I think both of those books are um, have been truly transformative for me because we realised even though we are significant, um, also our lives are uh uh, minuscule comparatively in terms of human evolution and uh, yeah. really, really interesting. Um, if you could have a dinner party at, with anybody who would be there, obviously your family uh, is allowed a free seat at the table, um, but is there anyone that you'd love to sit down and have a chat with? Yeah, well, when I read the the book Humankind by Rutger Bregman, I, I just, I, I really felt I could connect with him. Um, yeah. So I would love to have him at a dinner party because he's, he just seems to be this fascinating mind, and uh, you know he's young. He's um, he himself is still very much a learner, so I would feel he would be a great conversationist. Um, I also have I could listen to Vandana Shiva, who is um, someone who has done so much for um, for raising our awareness of the uh, ecology and the dangers of chemicals and farming and things like that, which just um, if anyone ever listens to her speak she's just you know she, she just puts you to to tears you know where she's um she's so profound so articulate in what she uh, she believes such a strong passionate person and um those are the two people alive i would have <laughs> um if i could bring some people back from from the past and from the dead i would have ken robinson Really? Uh, we just find he's he's just an amazing funny guy and maria montessori um just i I've, i'm reading a book right now about maria montessori's life and it's just 
she she was a remarkable genius. Um, and in terms of education, I think she's been somebody who uh, we all, um, if we haven't read about her and haven't read about her her principles of education, I think we you know we we can't really call ourselves a a, a well-read educationalist. So I, I've really been fortunate to yeah. have been involved with Montessori. And we'll definitely um, spend a, a proportion of this interview talking about um, uh, Montessori education, and that's obviously one of the reasons why I was um, uh, approached you for an interview. I think it's your work sounds so fascinating. And before we get into that, uh, what are you most grateful for from your parents? Well, my my parents um, they they um, they kind of took me out of this Southern California life where my father was a businessman in Southern California. I was born uh, the same year that Disneyland opened. Okay. My father was actually involved in Disneyland. He was on the Chamber of Commerce in, in Anaheim. Wow. And, you know, I think that there, there must have been a, a real future for him there. But he pulled us out and, and we went to Africa, in, to Uganda, to be a part of the, uh, some of the educational development there because he he was a businessman, but he also had training in teaching and and he was a science teacher. So he went and worked at a university there. So I'm really grateful that um, he had this foresight to raise the family in a place other than the comforts of, of, a, of a culture that was quite um, oriented towards uh, materialism and, and growth and, and perhaps a bit of self-centeredness. And so living in Africa, I mean, for me, that was like, I felt that that became my home because I was quite young. I was five years old there. And, and um, when it came, when we came back to the U.S. and, you know, it, it was, uh, it, I never felt like I was coming home. I always felt like I was leaving home when I left Africa. So, so I'm grateful for my father for that. I'm grateful for my mother also for having incredible um this incredible view of, of the world. I think she, she's the one that uh, really inspired me to think about um, beyond family, beyond just community and really looking at global issues and, and seeing how can we make the world a better place. She's very, she's very idealistic. She's still around. She's, you know, we still get together every, almost every other weekend. Um, I, I visit her and, and we have the most wonderful talks. I'm just so grateful for her mind amazing mind. Wow. So I'm very lucky to have, have had both of these wonderful parents. Wow, that's, um, that's really beautiful. Thank you for, uh, thank you for sharing. Um, for those people that are not familiar with your work, um, would you mind uh, just giving everyone a, a quick um, a snapshot of your career in education and how did you get to be where you are today? I mean, you talked about obviously traveling to, to Africa at a young age and then returning home, but how did you get involved in um, uh, in education? Well, it was quite by accident, actually. I was in high school in uh, in Massachusetts, and um, I was I was lost one day in my high school. I had just uh, joined, and we had to sign up for courses. And I was looking. Uh, it was a very progressive high school. We could sign up for things that we were interested in, which was fantastic. And I was interested in in journalism at the time, and I knew there was a journalism uh, course that I could take, and I. I walked into a room um, that was not the journalism room, and I just asked the the lady there, "Where is the journalism class?" And she said, "Well, why don't you uh, stay here? This is the um, this is our child study program. I think you'd really be interested in it." And she started to tell me about 
what this program was. And basically it was a program in which um, for, for three years in your high school, you focus on uh, studying early childhood education. And there was a laboratory uh, preschool part of the high school, which we, the students would run. And she, she just sold it to me. And that was my introduction to education. And, you know, from then I just, um, I, I was, I, I was interested in, in children and learning. I, um, I got my uh, associate uh, degree in, in early childhood education at, at a very young age. I was only 17 and um, I decided, well, this is my career. I, I quite like it. And I seem to be good at it and ended up in, um, in my, my first job after uh, studying and getting my, my bachelor's degree and looking for a teaching job, I got a job as a, as a teaching principal, a uh, small rural school in Oregon. Your first um, job. First my job. First job. 25 wow. years old. I'm there. Not, you know, I, I, when, I, when I got the job, I, I told them, you know, first, when I went to the interview, I just thought, well, this is just a practice interview. I, I know they'll never hire me. I'm totally not qualified for this. And so I went and met with the, the, the school board of this district in this country town. And, um, you know, I was very relaxed because I just thought, you know, you know I, they'll never hire me. And, and I, I was joking around a bit. I think I was quite comfortable in the interview. And, and then when I left, they said, could you just wait outside for a minute? And, and so I, I didn't know what they really wanted. And so they came back, the chair of the board came back, said, you know, we would like you to come back in. And then they offered me the job. And I said, wait a second, are you sure you know what you're doing? <laughs> and they said, no, no, we, we want somebody who's really young, has fresh ideas. So I said, well, you know, I, I've never run a school before. And they said, well, you, you know, you, you have had some restaurant management before, which I did while I was going to university. So, so anyway, that, that really took me on this trajectory wow. of school administration, which I've been in and out of for the last 40 years. So I started that. And it was a very successful experience. Then I went overseas. I worked most of the rest of my life overseas where I was, I kept on trying to get into teaching positions because I really wanted to be a teacher. But then, you know, the principal would resign or something and they'd say, oh, we need a principal. Can you just fill in for a while? And I was doing this filling in in schools. And I just, I said, well, I, I, it seems like it's inevitable. I, I should probably be a school principal. So for most of those 40 years, well, at least, you know, over 20 of those years, um, I have been in administration positions. And so therefore, um, I kind of define myself as being somebody with, you know, a tremendous amount of experience in school administration, also spent some time teaching. Uh, so I understand the classroom, both high school and primary school, and yeah. um, also public, private, um, Fascinating. mainstream Montessori. And so on. So, so how do you think that role of principal has changed since when you started 40 years ago uh, to now? What are some of the, the, and the, the seismic shifts that you have noticed? Uh, regulations. Yeah. I mean, that's the, um, the focus on regulation. And I think that that, and fear. Uh, I just think that there's, when we, when I first um, started in, in, in the job, in Oregon, it was, um, I mean, I, I was not only a principal, I was a superintendent of a school district. And I was, you know, I, I had to go to meetings with the superintendent of schools of Portland, the, you know, the capital, the not the capital, but the largest city in Oregon. And, and I had to, um, you know, 
kind of pretend to be to be this school administrator, but there was a there was a comfort about our role that I felt from everybody I worked with at that time. This was in the early '80s, and um, you know we we saw the 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 role of being an administrator as as a very noble um, service to schools. Um, we we had more autonomy, it seemed at that time, to be able to do the things that we really believed were were going to be uh, great for our schools. We supported each other. Um, we seemed to have the flexibility to to run our schools the way we felt um, was going to work. Uh, we did have a curriculum that we had to follow, but it didn't seem to be so. Um, uh, I mean, it didn't seem to be something that we we. Uh, had to um, follow strictly by by all of the um, you know, specific outcomes and and look at the results. There was there was testing and things at that time, but no big emphasis on it. The shift has been really in the regulations that uh, we we then almost shift our whole orientation to. Uh, we need to make sure that we're doing what we have to do. Mm. Make sure that we are keeping the staff from quitting and from leaving their, their, their job and making sure they're happy. And then parents, uh, you know, are, are sometimes confused about what education is and what they want for their children. And they're, and I feel that there's a competitiveness about schooling that puts the principal front and center into a position where they are often under attack, often um, trying to really, um, run the show uh, at the same time when everyone else is confused about what the show actually is mm. and they end up um, getting it wrong a, a lot and, and therefore it's it's a very challenging job and I, it's not one kind of one that I, I'm, I'm kind of glad it's behind me I'm glad I've kind of yeah. uh, the last two years has been you know so amazing for me to, yeah to be away from it and, and what are some of the um Obviously, you've got sort of this unique experience of working not just in the American system, but also uh, in Australia and also around the world. What are some of the similarities um, that you see of great education systems, ones that you've been involved in? Well, you know, one of the uh, probably the most satisfying um, experience I had was in uh, in Colombia, South America, working at an international school. And I know, I know it sounds strange, but... Um, yeah, I, I went there um, also still young and then um, worked in a school that um, was, um, it, it was um, accredited through um, an American association. So we used uh, both the Colombian curriculum and the American curriculum. Um, but what I found there was that I worked with a team of people. It was a very large school. We had about 1,200 students, quite a large staff. Mostly uh, Canadian. Um, we, we hired mostly Canadian because Americans were afraid to go to Colombia at that time because there was too much violence going on there. It was almost in the Civil War. And um, so the Canadians were quite cool about coming. We had a lot of Australians and British who also were okay about coming, Europeans. So um, it was an um, international school for, it was designed for the expats, but we also had a lot of government people in the school. The, the team of people working there were, were so interested in getting education right because we knew we had this responsibility. We could actually um, work with a lot of the, the Colombian um, students in the school who were, would probably 
eventually become the, the leaders in the, in the country, it would either be the business leaders or the political leaders. And we knew the country was um, in strife. And so we thought, if you get the education right, then actually um, you, could, you could actually have an influence on society. And I saw that in this microcosm of, of this um, incredible um, political situation, social, um, the social ills that were going on there, but a beautiful country, a beautiful culture that had this tremendous potential. So I think that it, it is sometimes not the system as much as the, whether the school can achieve this, this, this focus on the, the broader good that we're doing in a school. And I found that in that school in Colombia. And, um, and since then, I think I, uh, when I came to Australia, I, you know, I left Colombia feeling in some ways I needed to have my children growing up in a place that was a bit safer. We, we were having to live almost, you know, with, in fear of kidnapping every day. And, and uh, there was a lot of, at that time, there was the feuds between the, the, the cartels and there were a lot of bombings going on. So I really came here for the safety and my parents lived here in Australia. So I uh, came here for the safety and I, uh, of, the, of the country and the culture and, and loved coming here. Uh, to see uh, a very, very safe society, but I also saw a very competitive society. And I started working in schools here, in the public schools, and just felt everyone was focused on performance. Everyone was focused on how do we get the kids to pass the exams? How can we get them ready for high school? How can we get them ready for the HSC? All of it seemed to be about this performance-driven uh, education. It wasn't about the broader wider world. And, I, and it was quite sad to come into this. And I kept thinking, well, maybe I can change schools here in Australia. Maybe I'll you know, get a job as a principal and, and maybe enlighten the community in some way. But it's, it's quite ingrained in, in our school culture, I think. And, and that's part of the reason why I shifted into Montessori was I felt that mm -hmm. you know, Montessori had that broader um, scope on, yeah. on education. I was talking to um... The amazing uh, uh, Professor Andy Hargraves yesterday, um, oh. and we were talking about um, how childhood is far much more than preparing people for adulthood. Um, and I thought that was a really um, a, a really beautiful um, insight. And I think quite often we uh, sort of rush people through a process to develop good citizens, but actually, the fact that childhood in in of it in sorry, in itself is really quite valuable and really quite significant. And um, keeping that in mind, um, why would you like to sit down with Maria Montessori? Uh, why, uh, how are some of the ways that her approach to education has really impacted you? I mean, you, you talked briefly about getting into Montessori education when you came to Australia, um, but uh, why is she such a fascinating character? Oh, there's so many things. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could go on and on, but I think the, 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 one, the one thing that um, fascinates me and, and continues to fascinate me for the last 15 years since I've been uh, learning more and more about Montessori is her focus on the child. I mean, she was, a, she was truly a child advocate. She, yeah. um, she recognized from the very beginning that there, that, and, you know, she also doesn't see that, you know, we are preparing the child for ad adulthood. She said, you know, when you look at the child, you see the adult, you know, the, mm. yeah, it's, it's, 
it's not about preparing them for something. It, you know, the adult is there. It's just that, you know, it's a, it's a completely different concept to this aspect of, of bringing um, a child through a process so that they can become the person you want them to be. She yeah. said, said, no, the person is there. You know, mm. it, it's within the child. So I think that that's, that's what I would love to explore more with her. And I just feel she has, um, through her observation and through both her spiritual side, as well as her scientific side, she has combined these uh, characteristics in her own personality, something within her, where she, um, she sees more holistically uh, who the child is and yeah. who the potential of the child is, yeah. as not only the adult who will be you know, the, the, the person in, in, in the world who will, who will not just be functioning, but will be the person who will make the world a better place. I mean, she often talked about, about the child being the, the, um, the hope for mankind, yeah. that, you know, the, that peace coming through education. Absolutely. And these are things that, you know, this is what makes her a genius is that she, you know, she really understood the child as not a child that needed to be filled with knowledge and skills, but a child who had, the, had everything inside and all we needed to do was just step back and, and let, let the child flourish. Yeah. And I think that's such a different uh, way of looking at education and learning. And it just has fascinated me as yeah. I've learned more and more about it. And has that um, impacted the way that you um, approached parenting with your own children? Absolutely. Yeah. But I, unfortunately, my, my, by the time I got into Montessori, my children were already in high school. So um, I remember my my son who was going to Mon- Mossman High School, and um, yeah, he would just he'd come with all this homework, and um, you know he would say, "Why do we have to do all this? Why do they just you know we we just sit in class all day, and then we come up with this you know these piles of of things we have to do, and and it just it, it's really quite um, you know he really questioned um, why do we yeah, and so. You know, I started saying, well, actually, you know, there are other ways of learning and other ways of teaching. You know, you're just in a system right now that this is this is the best that they can do. This is what they think is the right way. But, you know, I just instead of telling him that it was wrong, I just said, you know, can you think of other ways in which we could be uh, teaching learning? So he had this um, assignment for mathematics that he had, which um, had to he had to learn all of the all of these formulas, and he said, "I have no idea why I'm learning these." I said, "Well, go back to your teacher and ask, you know, what is the purpose? What is the practical application of this?" Yeah. And he did. Uh, he said the the teacher wasn't all that happy that he had done that, but said, "Well, you know, if you were going to let's say you're going to build a barbecue in your backyard, you need to know you know dimensions. You need to know how many bricks. You need to know all of the." you know, the, the engineering structures of, of that structure of that barbecue that is going to make sure that it'll last for a long time, that it'll, it'll hold the heat and all these things. So formulas can help with practical things like that. So I said to him, do you think that education would work better if you were in people's backyards making barbecues and constructing those? And then the teacher coming and explaining kind of how the engineering works on that and then learning the formula through that and he said yeah that would be that'd be amazing that would be great and so what happened I mean, he was very very good at um, 
mathematics. And so all it did was it just, even though he stayed in the mainstream system, it gave him an idea about how education could be different. And that's the contribution that I made with my youngest. And yeah. he went on to, he went on to university. He's, he's now um, an aerospace engineer. He's working for SpaceX as a launch engineer in California. Nice. You know, he's done well, not because of me necessarily, but you know, because of the fact, I think he just, he took on a different attitude about education. So you don't have to be in a Montessori school. I think you can just, if you see you know, who you are as a learner, understand yourself as a learner, understand systems, yeah. that, you know, whether they're, they're right or wrong, it, it means how do you see yourself as a learner? How do you see yourself as a contributor to the world? And I think yeah. you can, you can do I think, like I think it makes sense to, to understand the, the purpose behind what you're doing. I mean, my, my I, I hated mathematics in school, absolutely hated it. Um, my high school teacher hated it as well. My, my own maths teacher didn't, wasn't particularly interested. And we were always told that the answer is in the back of the book and just don't look. And for me, that was just a complete waste of time. And it wasn't until I got to university and had an amazing um, uh, lecturer called Professor Catherine Attard, who I had the privilege of interviewing as well. And, and she showed me this just this purpose behind mathematics and why it was so useful. And, and I think about this all of the time, like how many students are sitting in classrooms and they have this perception of themselves that they are not creative, that they are not great at science or mathematics or English or whatever it may be um, because of the way that the content is presented to them and the fact that they haven't been told why. Um, and it, it really breaks my heart because mm. for me, um, I see maths everywhere now and it's an incredibly beautiful and creative subject. And I think, where was this when I was in high school? Um, it was always there. It was just presented to me in a different way. Um, Bill, I did just want to get your thoughts as well um, about the importance of play. Um, I had the incredible privilege of um, having this conversation with uh, Parsi Solberg a little while ago um, and he is obviously such an advocate for play, but would you mind um, talking to me or talking to us about the importance of play and why it is so central to education? Mm, yeah, and and I, I love Pazzi's work. I mean, I, he's just, um, he, he's been a gift to Australia to have somebody of his caliber. He has, uh, yes. Bless our shores, but um, he, um, yeah, he, he looked at play and I, and I guess, um, you know, a lot of that is is about engagement, about you know, more of a, a physical, creative way in which we can we can um, have children learning rather than through uh, something that's very oriented to the mind. But um, I, kind of going back to what you were saying before, what we talked about in terms of purpose, yeah. I think that, um, that often in Montessori they don't use the word play; they use the word work, and and yeah. that's yeah. that often is 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 what quite conflicting for people. And they say, well, in Montessori, they don't play, they work. But it was because um, when Maria Montessori opened her first school in San Lorenzo back in 1907, wow. she was in the, the slums of, of, of Rome and, and she was asked to go and open a kindergarten in, in the slums. And so she, um, they donated toys to her. And so she had these rooms all set up uh, for the children, she wanted to just kind of see how they how they would respond when they came in. The the toys were all in the in 
in in the room. And um, you know, they came and they they would play with the toys a little bit. But then, when uh, one of the teachers started to sweep the floor, the children were fascinated about the sweeping, and they they just they wanted to do that. And so she she would she recognized that the sweeping you know was was we see it as work, but what they saw, they saw the purpose in it. They saw that there was something that happened with the sweeping that would clean the floor. And this is where she started to recognize that actually uh, engagement with, with, phys- with sensorial kinds of activity was really what, um, what children want to do. It's not what they need to do, it's what they want to do. They want to do something that's purposeful. And so she set up, she kept setting up activities that they could do that were, were purposeful, cleaning, but also um, uh, things that we were, such things as sorting through um, things that might need to be done, folding the towels that might be needing to fold, be folded, um, what she called practical life activities. And, and these, this was, um, and when I first went into a Montessori school, it's almost thinking, well, this is, this is child slavery. <laughs> you, know, this is, you know, these kids being yeah. put, you know, put to work here to do things, but it was, it was because they chose to do things that were purposeful. So play to a child is is really important that but the play should be something that also is relevant mm. to them i mean there's one thing to get a plastic toy and let them pretend that they you know they have this plastic kitchen and they're going to they're going to cook with the and pretend that they're cooking i mean that that's there, there's a diversionary aspect to that but actually to put them in a kitchen where they actually make food you know to them that's far more fascinating far mm. more relevant to them and this is really where children's interest in, in, in uh, doing things and, and being active in, in, uh, in actually doing things with materials and with, um, with the world in which they live in so that they can feel that what they're doing Amazing. Is, is practical. Amazing. Um, it does raise a really uh, interesting question about assessment, doesn't it? I know uh, in Australia, uh, we tend to be quite focused on assessment, uh, both formative, summative, standardised assessments, and so on and so forth. Um, do we, in your view, do we, should we assess kids uh, at a young age? Do we, do we need to? I mean, is there a, um, how do we kind of work out if we're quite unquote successful in what we're doing in terms of a Montessori mm. context? That's a it's a great question. Um, I, I think we always have to ask why. Why would we be assessing? And and I think that um, in the classroom, a teacher assesses for obvious reasons because that's going to determine whether the child has learned something. Mm-hmm. But also, it, it informs their planning and what they're going to do after that. So I think that it does have a role. And I, I wouldn't see. Um, the paper pencil kinds of testing and assessment is really anything that has much value. I do feel that that teachers who are who are well um, well trained, well oriented to uh, teaching and learning, can can use the tools of observation uh, effectively in order to 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 do the assessment that's needed. Because you do need to to make sure you are assessing not only what the child's learning, but what the child is interested in. You know, you, the teacher is a partner with the child, not, mm. not kind of, Montessori never put the teacher above the child. In fact, she, she put the, 
the child above the teacher in many ways. She she called the uh, the, the 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 child was the master and and the the teacher was the servant because the yeah, teacher yeah. was serving the needs of the child. So assessment really comes into how do you how can you fulfill those needs unless you can observe where the child is at and what the child is interested in. So yeah. yes, assessment does have a a place. Um, it's it's very important, but not in the way that we are. Uh, and we have interpreted it and where we are putting it into a very, very much a, um, a sorting of children, you know, sorting the ones who are smart and the ones that aren't, we say are, aren't smart. And that it becomes then uh, forms a class society, a, a competitiveness that really shouldn't be there with children. It, um, it made me think, though, um, as well as at the end of the day, our students are sitting university entrance exams if they choose to take that path so I mean how do we even begin to resolve that because they're going to need to sit I mean the way that we assess at the end of school like I said depending on which career path you take if you want to get into university traditionally they're very much um, I mean you're uh, doing your HSC or uh, achieving an ATAR so what do you think we need to do to try and resolve that issue? Because we can do all of these wonderful things um, in primary school and uh, with Montessori and so on and so forth for inquiry-based learning. But at the end of the day, we're sitting a very formalised assessment at the end of our school career. So how do we even begin to resolve that issue? I think that through the um, 13 years of schooling, if we don't know by the 13th year, who the child is, yeah. and something's wrong. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, th that has been an opportunity to to learn about the child, yeah, and to yeah. learn about the person who will eventually, um, and for the child to learn about him or herself too. So, yeah. I think that having an assessment at the end of that to determine, well, where where is that child going to go, is is a bit like saying, you know. The 13 previous years were really not that important to, to shape right. this child. So, yeah. So, I really think that, you know, assessment really has to be a cumulative kind of uh, yeah. process in which we, we, we the, the obvious becomes um, very real yeah. in, in that uh, direction that the child will take after, after high school. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't think that um, yeah, having them sit these these exams is is going to do any good whatsoever. I really don't. I think if we if education in the system and the trust was given to the teachers to to really determine how uh, this how, how this child is is developing through these years, I think that we we wouldn't need these exams. And mm -hmm. one really amazing story I heard that this uh, girl who had gone to a Montessori school up through year six and then when she went to year seven, she'd never sat an exam before. And so she went to year seven and they said, okay, we're going to take a test. And, and here's the test, handed all the students the test. The girl just looked at the test and she didn't know the answers to the questions. So she got up out of her chair. She went to the back of the room. She knew there were some books back there that may have the answers. And she, and, and she was pulled aside saying, what are you doing? She said, I don't know the, the answers to these questions. So I'm finding the answers. So you're not supposed to do that. This is a test. You're supposed to write down. If you don't know it, you're supposed to write something down and then go on to the next question. And she said, but that's not the way, you know, learning is. Learning is if you don't know the answer, you find the answer. Yeah. You know? Wow. So assessments can actually um, rob us of this um, 
the the skills of what we do mm. when we're learning. Learning is all about finding out, about having that thirst for knowledge, the love of learning, rather than seeing learning as something that's going to to be uh, anxiety provoking. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, you touched on trust, which I think is is so important. Um, do you think there is this sort of, I mean, we're talking generally uh, in terms of the Australian system, uh, education system. Do you think there is this sort of perceived like lack of trust in teachers? Do you think that we over assess when we are not confident that the people in the classroom will do their job properly? Uh, would you mind maybe talking ab ab about that? I mean, how do we sort of get that trust back so that we can make the decisions that we need to for our for the students in our care? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a really, and, and it's a really important question to ask uh, everybody because uh, I think that, um, you know, are we operating in a glass half empty or glass half full kind of a scenario? And I think that when we look at teachers, um, if, if there's a, a general assumption that the teacher uh, needs to be uh, monitored all the way and needs to be um, assessed themselves through the process, um, a teacher doesn't feel trust in that kind of a scenario. They feel that they're 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 running with a bit of a deficit in the community. That they, you know, they're not trusted. So therefore, they need to prove their their worth. I think that can rob the the teacher of of something that is hopefully authentically inside them. You know, they, there's most teachers um, love teaching. Most teachers want. They, they've joined um, the ranks of teaching because they 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 probably have some altruistic goal and have done it all for the right reasons. Mm. They've gone to um, teachers' college with this with this enthusiasm, and and many times they go through the, the schooling and get their degree uh, with that enthusiasm. When they've landed the school, what they find is that there's not only um, the distrust that they, they meet amongst other teachers in the school, but they, they also have the distrust of the system, you know, where, um, where they have to kind of prove their worth uh, as they go along. You know, we have, we have the standards, you know, the, in, in the teaching, the seven um, standards for, um, for the accreditation of teachers. And, you know, and they're great standards. There's nothing wrong with them. It's just that... Um, we kind of have to, we put a teacher through a process of, of proving that they, they are meeting those um, standards and indicators, yeah. uh, much in the same way that a child would in, in school. They don't ever feel trusted that they actually have, um, not that they have it all, but they, they're going to be constant learners, but they need to be trusted uh, with, the, um, with knowing what's best for the children I think that if um, if the system is dictating too much about how to teach, what to teach, where to teach, and then to have to uh, provide all of this proof that they're teaching, they they become uh, just part of an administrative system yeah. that is just going to kind of dish out what the system wants, and they don't feel empowered, they don't feel trusted. So I think that you're not getting the best out of teachers because that trust isn't there. So if you could um, if you could add one thing. Uh, to uh, teacher training, what, what would that be? To learn about yourself. Yeah. I think this is, this is the, um, most of our skill as a teacher 
comes from inside us and comes from something that we can really um, understand in ourselves. Mm. And um, I, I think that teacher training is, is, is the old system of, you know, of um, the tabula rasa, you know, you, you kind of have, you, you don't know anything, so we're going to give you everything. And, um, you know, you sit there as a passive learner through the whole process, but there's not the learning about self. And, and I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy and maybe a bit idealistic, but um, I'm really, I really do feel that um, teachers are in such an important position in the schools and, and in, in, in the society. I mean, it, it really is, uh, we, the, the teachers can uh, create a, a child that is feeling strong about themselves and feeling um, ready for this world in many ways. And they can also make a child feel completely um, unuseful and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, a child that really doesn't have that confidence in self. Yeah. There's, so, there, there's so much at stake, you know, when you go into a classroom. So yeah. if teachers learn about their, you know, who they are as a person and they have a strong character mm-hmm. and they have a strong identity as as an individual but also as Pasi Salberg has said he you know what they did in Finland was you know they 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 trained the teachers uh, a lot about their their professional identity you know this is this was much about what the master's courses were in Finland was about professional identity and when he told me that I just I thought yes of course that's what that's what teacher training really needs to be about it's about this identity of the self really working on the self so yeah absolutely i mean there's so much uh in that discussion and it's one of the things that i'm incredibly interested in is is this how 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 do we train the next generation of educators um and uh yeah there's so much there's so much in that and i did nothing about professional identity when i was at university it was all about standards and lesson plans and observations and um, it was really a really important point, Bill. Thank you um, for sharing. I'm, I'm also interested uh, if you were uh, building an education system from the ground up. This is another one of those big questions. What do you think would be some of its essential elements? Mm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think that's such an um, important question for us to ask. And I think that um, I'm, I'm always reading different things about what um, ideas are out there. And, you know, we, we have gone all the way from traditional education to no education or, you know, de-schooling um, movements, especially since COVID. And I think that um, when I think about building something from the ground up, I really do think that, you know, the foundation is laid by an understanding of the child. And that's, that's what I've learned since I've been uh, learning more about Montessori is that this, um, this regard for the child and really setting that foundation. And you build, uh, you build the child's experience from understanding and observing the child. So any school, whether it is um, a school that's going to be uh, built with, with structure and, and environments and things like that, that, that does need to have the child front and center then you know what I, I do feel there's there's a need for having schools as as a part of the community, much more connected to the community rather than these silos that have been built 
as, as the place that people go for schooling and then they come out and meet the world. I think the world and the schools need to be much more combined together so that you have a school that is part of the community so that the children are, are, are going to, are involved with the, the, the retail businesses in the area, with the libraries, with the museums, with the government offices. Um, you know, schools could be, you know, could, could be in the form of a hub with, with lots of experiences outside of that. Um, it obviously can, depends on, on the ages of the children, but mm. uh, there are some fantastic examples of, uh, of Montessori schools in the US that have developed in shop fronts and, and it's just a classroom in a shop front, but the whole idea is to, is to connect the children in that, uh, these are preschools, you know, three to six year olds, so that they uh, they can go to the shops when they need something um, for the classroom. They can when when it's time to have lunch, they go to a cafe and they ca- they have an arrangement with a cafe that they can actually sit and and have their lunch in the cafe at a small table and and um, they can experience that. They can go to the library and so it's that integration of of right. schooling with the community. So I think. Fundamentally, I would start with the child, the child's connection with the community, and then go from there. Fantastic. There seems to be a couple of common themes, I think, from our uh, from our discussion, and that is obviously getting to know the individual child, the importance of teacher autonomy, and also the importance of trust. Like, let's trust our professionals to do the job, and if we don't trust them, uh, maybe that's an issue in how we're training our teachers. Um, I, exactly. I think that's so, so important. Um, Bill, I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, and there are so many uh, talking points and, and, and uh, issues that you've raised that, that warrant further discussion. And so maybe at some point we could do a, a round two. But in terms of um, today, I just wanted to get your thoughts on um, what the current COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about the importance of schools and uh, if you're confident that we can learn these lessons or do you think we're just gonna spring back to old habits? Well, I would, you know, when we went into our first lockdown and uh, in 2020, I thought, oh, this is a tremendous opportunity for us um, because it could redefine education fundamentally because children were all of a sudden um, were, were confined to their homes uh, with their parents to do learning at home. And the reason why it, it, it had this potential was because uh, all of a sudden we could redefine learning. If we, if we define learning as something that happens in schools, then we have missed out on the majority of a child's life, which is um, outside the school, actually. You know, it's, it's in the home, it's in the community. So COVID, I, I think, gave us, uh, it woke us up to that. And I think it woke up a lot of the parents, not just the educators, the parents. They started both to see that, um, okay, my child's at home, the child can learn at home. But the response from a lot of schools was to, to almost mimic the classroom experience in the home. And it, it put a lot of pressure on, the, um, on both the child and the parent. Yeah. To have to say, well, I, you know, I'm not a t- trained teacher and, you know, I'm all of a sudden I'm having to, to supervise my child, make sure they're doing all these assignments and, 
and teachers almost felt, well, in order to, to do this properly, they, they also almost overburdened the child with, with work to keep them busy so that the parent saw that they, they could just keep them on the computer for the whole day. And I, I think that, it, the, unfortunately, when that happened, we, we really missed the opportunity right from that very start in, in, in our first lockdown experiences where children were at home uh, doing schoolwork. I think that if children were at home and parents were given uh, these opportunities, why don't you do this with the, your child today? Why don't you play a game with them and talk about you know, numbers with them? Why don't you get to know your child a little bit better? You know, why don't you, you read some books with your child? Why don't you go off and, and build something? And you know, the, if, if they were kind of like given lots and lots of things to do that were, were very different from schooling, I think then we'd have this opportunity to have opened up this aspect of learning and then seeing education is broader than what we, we practice in schools. So I think we lost the opportunity, unfortunately. I, I, don't, I do think that the, the OECD uh, put out a report just at the beginning, you know, in, during 2020, um, saying what are some of the learnings from, uh, from this um, um, our experience with COVID and, and the disruption in education. And you know, they, they came up with some pretty interesting ideas, including such things as the hub concept of schooling, um, the, the uh, schooling that is not oriented towards necessarily place, that's oriented more towards experience. And uh, these kinds of models, which um, are, are really quite, quite interesting to, to, to look at and to study. So I think COVID has been uh, a, a disruptor, a good disruptor in education. But I think what we're seeing now, 2022, is a lot of people just seeing how exhausting education in the in the in the way that we're we've been doing it is for for educators. They they're leaving in droves. They, there's a lot more people just saying, "I don't think I can do this much longer." Um, that's that's a serious um, a serious statement on on the profession and on the structures of, of schooling. Do you think we can learn our lessons or do you think we will just jump back into old habits? Uh, Matthew, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm, I'm such an optimist. <laughs> I always believe we can learn from, learn our lessons. And um, I think it's like trying to, to uh, change directions with a very large ship. It just, it takes time and takes patience, but the more we can, I, I do think that we can. I think that uh, there's more awareness that's that's coming. So I'm optimistic. I think you have to be. Otherwise, yeah. you're in the wrong profession. And yeah. <laughs> Bill, final question uh, as we begin to wrap things up from our wonderful discussion today. Um, what do you hope your legacy has been in education? Oh, um, I think that... Um, I'm working right now with uh, school administrators. So I do um, training courses for administrators worldwide uh, in Montessori. And um, I hope the legacy I'm leaving is that uh, school administration uh, principalship is not about uh, power. It's about empowering rather than powering over. And I think that um, it's one of those things that I, I do um, bring up and, and we, we explore in every course that I do, whether it's in Europe or America 
um, here in Australia, it's, um, it's very much about um, opening our eyes to how, because in Montessori, we have an opportunity to use very, very different principles of, of learning. And if you, if you look at it from the adult, we really do see that actually as adults, we're not that different from children. You know, we, we, we still want to learn by doing and having purposeful learning, but in structures of administration, um, it's not that it's totally non-hierarchical, but I, I'm, I'm kind of, what I'm trying to instill in people is that we can actually run schools without it being such a, a power focused um, um, yeah. Approach. Yeah. So I, I really think that that's the legacy. I hope I can leave is is to re, is to have hopefully people can consider their their role as administrators. Fantastic. Well, Bill, it has been a privilege to speak to you today, um, and I, I'm hugely grateful uh, that you would take the time and talk with me. and And thank you for um, your decades of contribution. Uh, to our wonderful profession. Um, I love your passion and your excitement and your optimism. And it's uh, a, a huge privilege to get to talk to you. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you so much for doing this podcast because I think it's wonderful for teachers to, to have an opportunity to listen to a variety of, of people um, who have these different perspectives on education. They, they, they need to be inspired, I think, by this kind of thing. So. Fantastic. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.